0: I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. This episode is part two of my conversation with Edward Villella. Enjoy. Now, you are also one of the iconic interpreters of the role of Apollo, which is the other masterwork that Balanchine made for Lefar. And interesting with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe that, you know, Balanchine I said ballet is woman, but under Diaghilev, Ballet Russe was really like ballet is man, Petrushka. Apollo, Prodigal Son. So, so with all of that, uh, how did your experience in Apollo, another one of those anchoring male roles, how did that mold you?
1: It was enormously challenging musically to begin with. See, I, 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 I was never a musician. I, I, I was fairly musical, actually pretty well comfortable. With music, but I, I knew nothing about it. I couldn't read it. I uh, I couldn't play an instrument. I, I was never trained in in that stuff. So I I again I had to listen. But again, as I say, anything with Balanchine, you had to keep your eyes on him, and you had to keep your ears open um, to to see what he did musically and whatever he did musically was brilliant uh, so this idea of what stravinsky had provided for balanchine their relationship was unbelievable they they had deep regard and respect for each other and i've never seen anybody that Palachy respected the way he respected Stravinsky. The first time I saw Stravinsky, again, I went, yeah, I knew none of this stuff. I had no background. And the old School of American Ballet, you had to enter on a platform and then go down. We're all down rehearsing something. I think it was Agon, or whatever. And there's this man standing in a very formal hat. He had his glasses on. He had a big muffler on. And he had a big overcoat. And he had gray gloves and a cape. <laughs> and said, who is that? They said, oh. That's Stravinsky, and everybody turns around, and suddenly the entire room makes a reverence. And everybody, the, the, the pianist in particular, run, they go over, they help him down the stair, they bring him down to the mirror, uh, take his hat, get his coat off, take his muffler off, gets his gloves off, takes his jacket off, and suddenly this tiny man evolves. And he, he became huge. And there was Balaget who was revering him. There was electricity about it. And uh, the admiration and respect that they had for each other was available. And it was incredible to be in the presence of it. And then, uh, you know, as, as time is going by one day, Balanchine is walking down the hall, and he stops, he looks at me and he says, you know, I'd like you to learn Apollo, because I think you have potential in Apollo. Tucker, oh my God, Apollo? And I'm, I'm not a very tall guy. And all of the Apollo's were, you know, six-odd feet tall. I was like, why, why does he want He wants me to do it? Let me go and learn. And so I, 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 I'm all excited. I go, I learn it. And, and he said, okay, there, show me. So I show him the... The big variation and he stops, he looks at me, he said, no. He said, that's not Apollo. And I went, oh Jesus. <laughs> I said this to me. Those are the steps, they're the counts that ah steps and counts. But this there's no what's the phrasing he used there? And I I I I am devastated. And And he says, I'll show you. And he was a man at that time, probably mid-60s. He had a a double-breasted suit on and one of his famous ties. So he starts to do this role for me in 65 or whatever he was. And it was startling, just startling. And I could see it now. I could understand it. I could figure out. I wasn't just doing a, you know, a gesture. But it was the entire character was available and there. So if you kept your eyes on him, you would get it. And after his doing that whole thing, I got it. Then I understood how I had to approach this. And it was like nothing else I had ever danced before. So, um, Uh, Again, just, um, he educated us all. He showed us how. He showed us the brilliance of great art.
0: And you've said how the ballets just poured out of Balanchine, and that creative outpouring included numerous important roles for you there's so many amazing roles that he either made specifically for you or that he revived for you but while we're thinking of Balanchine and Stravinsky I'd love to hear any thoughts you'd like to share about rubies we've we've had Patti McBride on the show she's talked to us about the ballerina's perspective but Balanchine Stravinsky Capriccio for piano and orchestra Eddie and Patty at the heart of Jules
1: <laughs> well
0: Surprise.
1: Never said a word. (laughs) Never said a word. (laughs) Never told me who the character was. Never told me, uh, you know, who we were. And uh, it was just Eddie and Patty. (laughs) And here we come. And uh, it was the middle section of this three part ballet. You know, it was uh, French, American, and Russian. So I I figure, out, okay, okay, American? Okay. <laughs> That's where I grew up. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll deal with that. <laughs> and uh as time is going by, I'm, I'm 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 listening to the score and I hear clip clop, I hear this, that it and the other one, I'm I'm trying to figure out, for instance, when the curtain goes up, there's this, this string of dancers out there and then the biggest one in the middle starts coming plunging down the stage and <laughs> we say oh my god that's like the horse horse They were horses <laughs> you never got it until you got it <laughs> so you had to be around and, and the same thing if you kept your eyes on them, you suddenly got them. And And finally, this lady, she does a pot of sank with the four guys and her. And I'm saying, oh, my God, they're grooming the horses. <laughs> they're the grooms. <laughs> and then i say, saying, Patty McBride, she's the Philly. <laughs> That's... The (laughs) jackie. So, uh, revelations. (laughs) And as I say, if you keep your eyes and your ears open sooner or later, it all becomes available to you.
0: And you said before how Balanchine was always catering to highlighting the individual dancer, and he knew you were Italian, he knew your heritage, and then he does these Italian ballets for you, Tarantella, Harlequinade, Pulcinella. What (laughs) were some of the dynamics with that, where you know he's playing with and using (laughs) your own background to build these ballets? (laughs) Well, you know, Again, it was a
1: different time, and you didn't necessarily think that one. But certainly some of those, those things were, were pretty obvious to me. You know, the, the pulchonellas, the this and that, the other, the, you know. Oh. So you started to play. You started to figure it out. You watched. You watched what other people were doing, what your relationships were. What were the relationships within the ballet that you had with other people? And, and it all finally begins to find itself for you. And you either got it or you didn't get it. I never liked to perform on the outside. My, my sense of it all was <clears throat> you got to know it inside. And then you allow that to permeate, because it makes no sense to wear it. You have to have it within you. The the full understanding of it all certainly comes through your mind, but it has to come uh, out through your body.
0: I wanted to read you a line from the Russian writer Solomon Volkov about the New York City Ballet's 1962 tour to the Soviet Union. And he uses the phrase, uh, prodigal son, and I want to hear your thoughts about it and your thoughts about that tour. He said, uh, this is Volkov, an especially deep impression on the Petersburg intelligentsia was left by Balanchine himself by his nothing less than miraculous materialization in the flesh. Here he was, elegant, smartly dressed, courteous in an old fashioned, read, pre-revolutionary way, yet decidedly modern in his outlook and aesthetics and quite determined not to play the part of a prodigal son. The great paradox, the great surprise of this visit was that New York City Ballet had brought all the way from America, to 1960s Leningrad, the image of old St. Petersburg with all of its potent political and cultural reverberations?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let me give you a small story. Uh, opening night, first ballet in the Soviet Union, or first night, it was all the commissars and they sat there, bored out of their minds. And the first thing I, I danced was, was agon, and I did a little pas de trois, and then I had a variation. So uh, I go out, and I, I dance my variation, and I bow, and I left the stage in thundering silence. <laughs> not, not one hand hit the other. (laughs) Why would they? (laughs) What was different was the second night. (laughs) Then the Russian people came, and it was unbelievable. They had never seen anything like this, never heard this Stravinsky stuff. And uh, from that moment on, uh, it was totally different and you've got a a totally different sense of anything and everything.
0: What did it feel like to be part of Balanchine's entourage as he was returning to Russia for the first time after so many years? We
1: we all thought about it, and you know, but it was work. That's what we were doing. It was about the work, and the thing with Balanchine was uh, he watched every step you ever did, and he got. He got as close to being on the stage as you could. He would get quarter of an inch away from being absolutely on the stage and watching you. So in a sense, you were doing it for many different reasons, but there he was. We were trying to make something of the work he had provided us with. The company was about him. Not him, but his work, what he did, what he allowed us to do, and again, he always chose us so terrifically well. This variation, I, I did it. Hang on, you know, uh, one day he comes up to me and he said, "You know, I want you to learn that, and I want you to dance it." And there was a man, a man named Todd Boland, and he was a a fabulous dancer, and he moved like nobody else moved in the world. And I thought, oh, how do I do that? You know, i am that's not who I am. How the hell am I going to do it? And that end of season, he left the company. So now I had to go out the next season and dance this thing. And I don't know where how the hell do I do this thing? And I'm I'm pining away and pining away, and finally the day of rehearsal arrives, and he comes up to me and he said, you know, dear, I don't want you to dance that way. I want you to look like premier adult, I want you to be male premier adult, And I go, oh, my. And suddenly... He was allowing me to be who I am. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, a huge relief because there was no way anybody could imitate Todd Bogota. No way. No way.
0: I'd love to be able to ask you a few questions about Stanley Williams, Ah. because I know that he played a huge role in your metamorphosis as a dancer, as an artist, as someone who thinks about ballet. And you've written about how you two would, you know, go out and talk till the wee hours of the morning about technique and about the, the logic of classicism and all of that. And I would love to be able to hear, hear your thoughts about Stanley and, and the kind of investigation that you were able to make with him into the classical technique. Uh,
1: well, uh, first of all, you should know that Stanley Williams was one of the most incredible human beings all of us, any of us, had ever met. He was a gentleman. He was uh, the kindest man. Uh, he had no illusions about us or or anything. <laughs> but uh, if you had an ability that he got interested in, uh, that was a whole other world. And you could talk forever. As a matter of fact, one night we had, uh, it was the old city center. There was a tavern. So we're, we're sitting there, we're having our after-performance uh, meal and chat and and, and we're having a great time and uh to give you an idea of how intense we were a blizzard had taken place and we weren't even aware of it (laughs) so it was that kind of, of 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 intimacy in terms of what we were both terrifically interested in and stanley said to me At one point, uh, he said, you know, because I would compliment him all the time, and he said, you know, I learned more from you than you will ever learn from me. I mean, that's who Stanley was, you know, because um, he wasn't finished. So he began to examine us and see what else might be (laughs) further of interest to him. And it came sometimes from us. So that was the level and dimension of Stan.
0: What were some of the insights into classical technique that y'all worked Uh, out together? Well,
1: it it wasn't so much... uh, (laughs) of us working it out together because he knew it all. He was passing on the intimacies of these, these circumstances and situations to me. It really was the lives within us that we could bring to this art form. So uh, uh, it, it gave me a, a great sense of myself. It, it gave me a confidence. You know, I, I was a pretty confident guy. You know, uh, I was a boxer in college. You had to have confidence. <laughs> you step in the middle of a ring and some guy's throwing punches at you. <laughs> well, you know, I didn't have much to rely on. So I had to take it from within my own human experience. And see if that that would help me to create a character. Who are you on stage? Oh my God, who am I? What's what am I all about in this crazy role that I've got, or roles that I've got? You had to make a characterization that suited you but suited the period, style,
0: Atlanta, all of those things. I mean, it, it, it's mind driven. After your performing career, you undertook many different responsibilities and serving with the National Endowment for the Arts and in arts, arts leadership roles in New York State and directing other ballet companies. But one of your extraordinary accomplishments since your own dancing years was your founding and directing of the Miami City Ballet, which is one of our nation's great, great companies, has performed to national, international acclaim. You built it from scratch how would you articulate the foundational vision that you had for Miami City Ballet I had a pretty
1: good exposure and for me making the Miami City Ballet I wanted to make a company similar in its manner, style fashion, quality etc. to the New York City Ballet I mean obviously that's where I came from but the first thing I knew (laughs) you don't do that starting day one there has to be uh, a full understanding of the dimension of of responsibility when you have this kind of ambition in mind and it's not gonna happen immediately but I had I had the background, I had the knowledge, I I was taught. So I I had to do it slowly. But while I was doing it slowly, how did I prepare the dancers? What could I do to to help provide for them everything I knew? So I taught company class every day and almost every day. For 25 years, I taught dancers and I gave them everything I had ever achieved in my mind. And I told them about the mind and I told them about the musicalities, the two most important elements of all of this stuff. So um, I. By trying to provide them with enough material for they to find their potentials and and that 's what it 's all about I mean we we seek whatever we might be able to return that's that 's all we do so if you provide them with your arrogance and your Pomposity, eh, you know, you can find pomposity and arrogance anywhere. (laughs) But the rest of it takes a while. (laughs) It takes a long time, and you have to have this incredible commitment to it all. And uh, fortunately, as time was going on, I was starting to attract dancers who were at the next level and the next level. And it got to to a point where I had a whole company of them. And I always said to them, you are the guys who made me look good. Thanks. I always said thanks. (laughs) It's the first
0: thing you have to say. Learn how to say thanks. There was an interview where you were talking about your leadership in Miami, and you said, I am devising classes in service of repertory. Could you talk with us even a bit more about that relationship between teaching and repertory? And maybe with that, how did the influence of Balanchine and Stanley Williams shape your teaching?
1: Well, I I hung around them. (laughs) They were the guys who taught me. They, They showed me. And then... Oh, oh my God, it allowed me to think further. So as, as time was going on, I, I was becoming pretty astute at these kinds of things, but also I, I, I had an eye, and uh, I, I knew how to use my eyes. As I said, I watched Malachine and uh, Williams and all of the great people. So I, I I I had these images that I could reach back on, and they serviced me well. And they serviced all the people that I attempted. I kept seeking what else was available from each individual dancer. And I knew that they were all different but the technique that I was providing was the same for all of them. And how you, how you maneuver and manipulate all of that
0: stuff individually, uh, it, it, it takes time. Eddie, I wanted to ask you also, you're someone who's long thought about the relationship between dance and media, whether that was your Emmy Award winning Man Who Dances film, or you're hosting Live from Lincoln Center telecasts or your own Miami City Ballet's wonderful PBS Great Performances broadcast. And we're now in this space because of COVID-19 where almost all of the dance we're seeing is now media driven. How are you thinking through this this relationship between live performance and media? If I had my
1: choice, (laughs) I'd like to be there. It's a different quality of gesture. It's a different, uh, your eyes absorb it differently. Uh, I th- I think you're far better off to be there. But there's also one other thing. It's something called music. Live music is very, very different from what used to be called canned music. It's. It's a different vitality. It's a different energy. Everything about it has a, a reality. It's real. It's human. <laughs> wow! It's human beings doing human stuff and making great art. Wow! Wow!
0: That's um, that's uh, real. <laughs> what? are your proudest moments, achievements from your time at Miami City Ballet? I was, I was able to provide people
1: with as close to the best of themselves that they could achieve. I mean, to me, that was the ultimate thought and idea. If I could provide them with whatever it was that I had experienced uh, and related to them so that they would find who they really are. Wow. That's uh, that, that's not an easy thing to do. But if you do do it, people like you. <laughs> I, I talk to these people today, these people I work with decades ago. And they're, they are so kind to me and, and so appreciative. You know, it, it, I had the same experience. Oh, my God. I had the Balanchines, the Robins, all this stuff. I had it. Why should they not get to the point where somebody brings the best out of them?
0: And then my last question for you, Edward, is in 1992, you wrote your memoir, which you entitled Prodigal Son, Dancing for Balanchine in a World of Pain and Magic. What are the ways that this ballet has been a kind of parable of your own life? First of all, it came along very early.
1: So because it was a work of that dimension, a work of that challenge, well, it's... It's the challenge of life. And this was the biggest challenge, certainly at that time, of my life. And because I was able to do it early on, uh, it stayed with me. It stayed in the minds of people. I was able to move audience. I mean, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. You can get away with it. <laughs> I don't want to get away with anything. This is it. This is me. I spent my life trying to achieve all of these things. I'm comfortable with my life. You know, it life is great. It's terrific. You know, I'm I'm 84 years old. I did what I wanted to do. I fought my behind off to do. I fought my father to do it. Uh, you know, I, I fought my family to do this stuff. And I, I had the best life. I am, I am, I'm a happy guy. I have a great family. I have an incredible life of 41 years. And we still like each other a whole lot. We like each other a whole lot. And even my kids talk to me.
0: <laughs> so you're you're a you're a multidimensionally rich man, Edward. <laughs> yeah, I am. That is so great. And are there are there any any final things that you'd like to share? Any last words to the listeners?
1: The the first thing I could say is great choreographers don't just come around. And if you find them, get involved. Because that's what it's all about. I've worked with the greatest. That's, that's what it's all about. And if you can find anybody who's now going to replace Balaji, run. Go. Anybody who can come close or come near to that. All of these, these ballets that these great people provided us with, they're still here. Go and look at them. Figure them out. Trying to find out how they did it. It's available. It's
0: there. You know, if, if a guy like me could do it, maybe you could do it. Edward Vallela, thank you so much. You have poured your heart out. You have shared so deeply and with such passion. And I thank you. And I know all of the listeners thank you.
1: Well, I, I, I appreciate it. And, and I think you've done a terrific job. You've allowed me to be who it is that I am. And again, I deeply appreciate it.
0: To learn more about Edward Volela, Sergei Prokofiev, and the ballets we discussed, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.